Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, before we dive in, there's one other thing that I need to communicate to you. So uh, here we go. Over the past about five months, we have been in this building. It's been a lot of fun, uh, but we are already having serious space issues, primarily in this gathering. And I think you can look around and you can see what I mean, right? But over the past two Sundays, we have been at 100% capacity. I think a couple weeks ago, we were actually over it a little bit. That's been not only true in this room, but also in our kids' ministry wing. And I have a feeling it's probably the same today, all right? Uh, But I have to tell you, I absolutely love it. I mean, I told you before we ever moved into this building that we weren't moving in to settle in and do less ministry. Uh, we were moving to reach more people and to accomplish our mission in even greater ways. And so in my opinion, this is a great problem, but it is still a problem that needs to be solved. Okay, so recently our lead team, we met and we started a discussion about uh, how to kind of address the space issues that we've been facing. And we came up with two solutions. Solution number one concerns seating. Uh, you may have already noticed that when you walked in today, the seating's just a little bit different. We moved pews in the balcony. Can you guys along the wall, can you still see? Okay, up there. All right, good. So we moved some pews. Uh, we also closed the gap between chairs on the floor just a little bit. Can you guys tell? Okay, I was hoping that you wouldn't be able to, so. <laughs> but we closed the gap between the chairs just slightly. And look, by doing those two things, we were able to add 94 more seats into the room. So that's a big deal. I think that'll be a huge help moving forward. Uh, But solution number two concerns gathering times. Okay, ever since 2014, we have had gathering times at both 10 and 1130. We've had other gatherings around those, but those have been our two staple gatherings. Well, as we went back and looked at attendance trends, here's what we discovered. Year after year, attendance was identical at those two gatherings. In fact, there were certain years when 1130 was actually larger than 10 o'clock. And so what that lets us know is that 1130 is a really good time for our church. And I think 1145 is probably just a little too late. You see, here's the current problem that we face. There are probably about 200 to 250, not probably, there are 200 to 250 more people showing up at 10 than to 1145. And what we need to do is figure out a way to even that out. Okay. And so here's what we're going to try. And I always use this language anytime we make a change like this. Uh, This is going to be a big experiment, okay? And if the experiment doesn't work, then we'll kill it and we'll try something else. But here's what we're going to try. Starting February the 3rd, we are going to shift all of our gathering times back 15 minutes. So listen, our new gathering times will be 8 a.m., 9.45, and 11.30. And in light of that, here's the specific ask I want to make for all of you, okay? Uh, If you can make it work with your schedule to come at either 1130 or even eight o'clock, would you do that? That's my ask. If you can make it work, would you come at either 1130 or eight o'clock? Here's the deal. If all of us just show up 15 minutes early in a couple weeks, we're going to have the same problem that we have right now. And that cannot be an, an option for us. I mean, I've said this plenty of times in the past, but the last thing we ever want to do is turn people away because we don't have seats for them. Like, we're not going to be that church, but we are dangerously close to that in this gathering right now. And so here's the reality. By giving up your seat and coming at one of the two other times, you're actually helping us to reach more people who aren't with us yet. 
Like all you have to do right now to help us accomplish our mission in even greater ways together is give up a chair. And so that's the ask, okay? Uh, I'm going to keep reminding you of that in the coming weeks so you don't forget. But go ahead and mark Sunday, February 3rd on your calendars, the first Sunday of February, Super Bowl Sunday, trying to make it easy on you to remember that. And uh, again, don't all show up at 945. Some of you come at one of the other times, all right? Good? Okay. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, Today we are in week 16 of about a year-long series on the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 17 together. Genesis chapter 17. If you're just now joining us for the series, over the last several weeks we've been talking in great detail about the faith of this man named Abram. And we've defined faith simply as this, confidence that God is who he says he is and will do what he's promised to do. And so contrary to what some of you might think, uh, faith is not hopeful, wishful thinking as it's often described. I mean, come on, we've all heard this, haven't we? Well, just have some faith and hopefully your situation will turn around. Well, just have some faith and maybe things will get better. That's not faith. But neither is faith blind optimism. I was talking to a guy in my gym just recently about this. He said to me, well, James, the, the problem that I have, the struggle that I have with any kind of religion is the whole blind faith thing. And I said to him, seriously, but jokingly, well, faith isn't blind. And it's not. You see, true faith is not this unsighted belief about the future where you just kind of hope for the best in spite of not knowing what's to come. No, true faith and biblical faith is an assured belief about the future because you know who God is and you know that everything He's promised you will come to pass. And what we know from the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, is that Abram was a man of incredible faith. And we've seen that, haven't we? I mean, in Genesis chapter 12, for example, and I keep taking us back there for a reason. I want to beat this into your hearts and brains. But in Genesis 12, for example, when God first comes to Abram, he makes him some incredible promises. Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And so in pursuit of those promises, Abram does exactly what God calls him to do. Without knowing where he was going, in faith, he packed up his life and left everything behind. His family, his country, his citizenship, and he set out for this land God promised to give him. But we also know from the scriptures that his incredible faith at times failed in significant ways. I mean, we've seen this over just the last two Sundays, haven't we? Not only did Abram, uh, Abram, after about 10 years, start doubting God's willingness and ability to come through on his promises... But he also took a massive shortcut in his faith by sleeping with his wife's servant, all in hopes that she would provide the son God had promised him. But what we see in our passage for today is this, and this is fascinating. In spite of Abram's sin, in spite of his doubts, in spite of all of his failures, God in his grace shows up yet again and he says to this man, I've got you. I've got you. You have no reason to doubt me, every reason to trust me, every single one of my promises will come to pass. But then he makes somewhat of an interesting and even painful ask of Abram. We'll see this in the text later as we study through it. But what we learn from God's ask is this, and if you're taking notes, jot this down. This is the big idea of today's passage. We learn that obedience to God is the sign of faith in God. That obedience to God is the sign of faith in God. So in other words, it's your willingness to do what God asks you to do that serves as the proof of your faith in him. 
I mean, come on, you know this like I know this, but you can say you have faith in God all day long, but if there is no obedience to back it up, there's a very high probability that you might possess something other than true saving faith. If your Bibles are open to Genesis 17, we'll pick it up in verse 1 and I'll explain. Here we go. The Bible says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, we'll stop there and talk, all right? Uh, What we learn from the text is that 13 years have now passed between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. Right, if you remember back to last week, uh, chapter 16 closes by telling us that Abram was 86 years old when his son Ishmael was born. Now he is 99 years old, which means, number one, this dude has been waiting on the promises of God for 24 years. When God first came to him, he was 75. Now he's 99. You think you've been waiting a long time? He was waiting a really long time. But it also means that he's had a lot of time to think about his most recent lapse of faith. You know, this is like when you as a parent, if you've ever had small kids or if you have them now, when you put them in timeout. And you say to them, I want you to spend some time thinking about what you've done. Well, God just gave Abram 13 years to think about what he had done. And I imagine over the course of that time, Abram probably found himself wondering, did I blow it? Is God done with me? I mean, that whole like sleeping with my wife's servant thing, that was probably not a good idea. But oh my gosh, I'm hoping that God still comes through on his promises to me. Well, I love this. When God finally shows back up after all of that time, he answers all of Abram's questions with a single statement. He says of himself, I am God Almighty. Not Abram, you're a miserable failure. I'm so disappointed in you. I know I've made you a bunch of promises, but I can't use people who did the kind of things that you've done. No, he just shows up and he declares this self-revelation. I am God Almighty. This is the first time we see this name in the Bible, by the way. In the Hebrew, that name is El Shaddai, and it's a name that speaks of God's power, his sovereignty, his ability to do impossible things. And the reason God starts here, it's really simple. He's getting ready, and we'll see this in the text in a few moments. He's getting ready to tell Abram, in spite of what you've done, I'm about to do something impossible. I am about to open the womb of your barren wife, and at 90 years old, she's going to give birth to a son. More on that. Yes, some of you ladies are going, glad that wasn't me, right? But more on that, more on that later in the message. Well, after God makes this uh, revelation, he then gives Abram a responsibility. He says, walk before me and be blameless. When you study that phrase in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament, you find that a better way to translate the phrase would be, walk before me in order that you may be blameless. My family, we love taking walks in our neighborhood. 
And anytime we take a walk, I will make my daughters, Rowan and Selah, who are seven and three, walk before me. Okay, that way I can keep an eye on them. And as we walk, I often find myself saying stuff like, hey, uh, get away from the road. Get out of our neighbor's yard. Don't touch that. Don't pick that up. Put that down. Stay on the sidewalk. Like if you're a parent, this sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? And, and as my girls listen to my voice and they do what I'm asking and they obey me, well, it's their obedience that prevents them from straying off course. You see, that's the picture here. When we as people walk before the Lord, understanding that his eyes are always on us and we choose to listen to his voice and we do what he tells us to do, it is our obedience to him that keeps us on the right path and ultimately makes us blameless. Now, it's really important for you to know that word blameless does not mean sinless. It doesn't. The idea here is not perfection. I know you're broken. I'm broken. On this side of eternity, we're always going to deal with sin on some level, right? No, in the Hebrew, that word blameless means wholly devoted to the Lord, single-hearted, committed to living a life of obedience to him. This was the call on Abram's life, and it is still the call on our lives today. And it's so important that you get this concept Because I know that some of you walked in the room today and you really think that it is your job to make yourself blameless in this way. (laughs) Like some of you have convinced yourself that it's your responsibility to make you more devoted to God. And so what you've done is you've busied yourself with all this religious activity thinking that if you'll simply do more, you'll love God more, but you don't. And so you're incredibly frustrated right now. Can I just say to you, if that's you, it is not your job to make yourself blameless. It is not your job to increase your devotion to the Lord. Do you know what your job is? To walk before Him. To walk in intimacy with Him. It's the Holy Spirit's job who lives in you to then take your walking before the Lord and to use it to increase your devotion and your your single-heartedness to God. Again, this was the call on Abram's life. Well, after God gives him that responsibility, he then does something really significant. Did you catch the fact that God finally changed his name? Like a lot of us, we've been calling him Abram for weeks. A lot of us know him as Abraham. This is where it happens in his story. God comes to him and he reaffirms his promises by giving him a new name. Hey, uh, you're not going to call yourself Abram any longer. From now on, your name is going to be Abraham. The name Abram meant exalted father. It was most likely a reference to his own father. You know, he came from a very well-known and uh, noble family. The name Abraham means father of multitudes. And God says, that's going to be your new name now because I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful and nations and kings will come from you. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? I mean, not only did the nation of Israel come from Abram's line through his son Isaac, but so did many of the Arab nations of the world through his son Ishmael. As for kings, when you study Jewish history, you find that the first three kings in Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, all came from his line. And then in 931 BC, when the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, every king that reigned in Judah in the city of Jerusalem came from whose line? Abram's, including the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. But listen, at this point, all that's future. (laughs) None of it has happened yet. And so I imagine that every time Abraham said his new name, he probably felt both fearless and foolish all at the same time. You know, fearless because he knew God is going to do this. 
I mean, I've been waiting and I've done some stupid stuff, but God is committed to me. He's going to come through on my behalf. Foolish, because at this point in his life, he's 99 years old and has no kids. I mean, can you imagine the conversation with his friends and family after this? He goes back and he tells them, hey, uh, you cannot call me Abram any longer. From now on, I need you to call me Father of Multitudes. Anytime he introduces himself to a new person he's meeting. Hey, what's your name? Oh, great to meet you. I'm the father of multitudes. Well, not yet, but they're coming. Just trust me, God's going to do this, right? And as I was thinking this week about that, about the tension he had to feel as he stated his new name, it just reminded me that as followers of Jesus Christ, our future hope looks like present foolishness. Right? Our future hope looks like present foolishness. Think about this with me. Like Abraham, God has given us, his people, some incredible future promises, hasn't he? He's promised us that Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, our King, is right now alive, seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning over all, and one day he will come back and establish his visible kingdom here upon the earth. On that day, God has also promised us that we will receive brand new resurrected bodies. Sin, suffering, and death will be no more. And for the rest of eternity, we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ, experiencing life in the way it was meant to be. That's our future hope. Well, listen, in light of that hope, God has called us to live out a very specific purpose in the present. And the purpose, we've been talking about it this entire series. If you've ever wondered, why am I here? Here's the answer. The entire purpose of your life is to bear the image of the God who created you rightly in the world. This is Genesis 1.28. God creates mankind and he gives them a simple commission. Look, I've put my image on you and it's your responsibility now to live in the world in such a way that all the earth sees and knows who I am. Reflect my kingdom, reflect my character. And that's still our calling today. Why? Why? So that people who are far from God can make their way back to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And here's what living out that purpose requires. It requires you to embrace joy in the face of hardship. To embrace humility over status and significance. It requires you to practice generosity in place of greediness. And ultimately, it demands that you walk in obedience even when nobody else wants to. And can I just give you a warning? Like, and I know you know this because you're all smart people, but here's the warning. If you actually decide to live that way, to live out your purpose in light of your future hope, there will be plenty of days where your life looks completely foolish to the world around you. And what we see next in the text, it just further proves my point. Look at verse 9. And God said to Abram, this is where the text starts to get a little awkward and interesting, by the way. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Excuse me, God, can you repeat yourself? I would be happy to. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. 
And here is the consequence of failing to do so. He says, any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So think about this. After God gives the revelation, he gives the responsibility. He changes Abram's name to Abraham. He then says, all right, there's something I need you to do for me. And this something I'm asking you to do will be a sign of the covenant relationship that exists between you and me. If you missed the message from a couple weeks ago on Genesis 15 where we talked about that covenant, please go back and watch it or listen to it. That is such an important chapter in your Bible, and I want you to hear about it. But if you remember all the way back to when we studied the life of Noah in the series, I told you that in the Bible, different covenants have different signs. And I want to see how much you remember. So pop quiz time. You ready? Here we go. The sign of the Noahic covenant is the, is the rainbow. Yeah, just say it real loud if you know it, okay? Uh, after the flood, everyone's destroyed. Like the whole earth is just put to death. Noah and his family and all the animals come off the boat. And God says to him, anytime you see my bow in the clouds, let it be a sign and a reminder that I will never again destroy the earth in this way. Uh, the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Do you remember that one? Starts with a sab, ends with an uth. Sab, good job. Sabbath, yes. Awesome. I'm glad you guys are with me. Yeah, in the book of Exodus, when, when God, through the prophet Moses, gives his people, Israel, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, to tell them how to live as holy people in the land that he was giving them, he also says, hey, uh, I need there to be a sign of this relationship between you and me. Here's what it is. I want you to set apart one day from the other six days of the week. Uh, make it holy. On that day, don't do any work. Just rest. Remember me. Worship me. Uh, let this be a sign to the nations around you that you and I are in a very unique covenant relationship with one another. What about the new covenant? We didn't touch on this weeks ago, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. The new covenant that God has established with us as his people today through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know the sign of that covenant? I haven't heard it, so let me just give you a couple of answers, all right? A lot of people say that it's baptism, but you can also make a really strong case for the Lord's Supper. But in either scenario, those two signs or those two sacraments accomplish many of the same things, don't they? They remind us of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by partaking in them, we declare our love, our commitment, and our devotion to him as our Savior and our King. Well, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. <laughs> circumcision. God comes to him and he says, hey, uh, dude, as a sign of this covenant relationship between you and me, every male among you needs to be circumcised. It doesn't matter if that male was born in your house or bought with your money. At eight days old, this needs to happen to every son. And if it doesn't happen, then that particular male, he's cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. James, why circumcision? Like, geez, compared to rainbows and a day of rest, that sounds awful, like, <laughs> extreme, right? <laughs> so why, why did God want to do it this way? Well, I'm glad you asked. The, uh, the answer is fairly simple, and it's fairly graphic, but it needs to be. We have to remember that this specific covenant involved Abram, uh, Abraham's seed, and that seed, listen, that seed would come from the male reproductive organ. And so it was only fitting that that organ be marked in some way. 
and by marking the organ in a very particular way, the Jewish people were forced to remember, listen, that the only reason they existed as a nation, the only reason they were accepted by God was due to his grace and his power. But this physical mark also set them apart from the sexually corrupt nations that surrounded them. And by marking themselves, they were saying to God, we are willfully participating in this relationship you have established with us as your people. This is why circumcision. Now, what we know from the New Testament is that over time, the Jewish people hijacked circumcision and turned it into something it was never meant to be. Uh, I'm going to tell you a lot about some of Paul's writings in the next few minutes. I would encourage you, jot down these chapters and go read them on your own time this week. But in the book of Galatians, what we see is Paul, he's writing to a group of Gentile people. These are non-Jews. Because they're being told by a group of Jewish people called the Judaizers that they need to be circumcised. Hey, if you really want to be accepted by God, you have to do this. Okay, it's not enough for you to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus and have some minor surgery. Well, Paul writes to them and he says, hey, if you do that, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Like if you think salvation is somehow dependent on Jesus plus you cutting off a piece of skin, you have missed the point of grace entirely. And at that point, you should just go ahead and try to follow the whole Old Testament law perfectly if you really think that salvation is dependent upon you in any way. And the point Paul was making in that book is really simple. He wants us to know that signs don't save, Jesus saves. Signs don't save, Jesus saves. Paul drives this point home further in Romans chapter 4. Really important chapter. Uh, That chapter is basically Paul's own commentary on Genesis 17, the chapter that we're reading from today. So again, make sure you read that. But in Romans 4 verse 10, he poses a really important question. He asks, was Abraham counted as righteous by God before or after circumcision? And I want to help you out with the answer, okay? A couple weeks ago, when we were in Genesis 15, we saw him, God, in verse 6, counting Abram as righteous. I pointed that verse out for you when we were studying. Really important verse in your Bible. Circumcision doesn't happen until Genesis 17. And so what is the right answer to Paul's question? Was he counted righteous before or after circumcision? Before. And why was he counted as righteous by God? Because of his, his faith. Yeah, God declared him to be blameless, acceptable, holy in his sight, not because of something he did, but because of something he believed. You see, circumcision was only meant to be a sign or an evidence of Abraham's faith or belief in God. If that's still confusing to you, think about it like this. Uh, Married people in the room, you probably have a wedding band on your hand, don't you? Yeah, most of you in the room probably. And answer this question. What does that wedding ring accomplish? Nothing, right? It's a sign. This ring on your finger does not make you married. It simply serves as the evidence that you are married. Listen, that same principle applies to all these signs we're talking about. Whether it's circumcision or baptism or Sabbath or the Lord's Supper or any other good work you might want to lump into that category, it is so important for you to know today those signs cannot save you. Why? Because only Jesus saves you. Paul, again, teaches this in Colossians chapter 2, where he talks there about the circumcision of Christ. 
And he teaches us that when we as people put our faith in Jesus as God's Savior, Lord, and King, that God the Holy Spirit performs spiritual surgery on us, if you will. (laughs) That he goes to work on our hearts, circumcises our hearts, cuts away our old nature. Meaning the old us dies with Christ, the new us comes alive in Jesus Christ. Uh, He actually says there, I love the language and the imagery, that our sin debt is nailed to the cross and canceled forever. And consequently, we are declared righteous by God and welcomed into his family as loved sons and daughters. Hear me, your obedience accomplishes none of that. Your faith in Jesus accomplishes all of that. It is your obedience to him that then serves as a sign of your faith. 10 o'clock, are you tracking? Is all this making sense? I could keep explaining if I need to, but I'm going to trust that you're getting it. This is the good news of our faith, all right? Go back to the text. God doesn't stop here. I want you to look at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so picture it. God, he's finishing up this conversation and he says, okay, Abraham, don't call your wife Sarai any longer. Her name from now on is Sarah. Men in the room, can you imagine that initial conversation with your wife? (laughs) You go home after that and you call her by another woman's name. And your follow-up is, oh, no, no, don't worry, baby. God told me to call you that. (laughs) It's never going to work, is it? (laughs) But look, the reason God told him to call her that is the same reason God told him to call himself Abraham. God wanted her to have a name that reassured them of all his promises. You see, in the Hebrew, the name Sarah means princess. That's a fitting name since princesses give birth to kings And according to the word of God, nations and kings would come from her. And then I love this. God breaks the big news to Abraham that I touched on earlier in the message. Hey, I want you to know I'm going to bless your princess wife. And a year from now, she's going to give birth at 90 years old to a son. And Abraham responds in the same way any of us would have responded. He falls on his face and he laughs. And he says to himself, he cannot be serious right now. Like, doesn't God know that I'm closing in on 100 and my wife is closing in on 90 and people in our age bracket, we do not have children. You know, we're going to be that old couple at the ballpark constantly mistaken for the grandparents and it's about to get really weird. And so he says back to God, God, I have a great idea. I already have a son named Ishmael. You probably remember him. He had some very shady beginnings, but he's already alive. So why don't you just use him? And I think Abraham's response raises a really important question that we need to take a moment and answer, and it's this. Was Abraham doubting God again? After all this time, 
Was he actually doubting the word of God again? Here's my answer. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that his laughter at God implied doubt in God. I think that God's plan was simply so outlandish and so outrageous that all he could do in this moment was laugh. And I want to show you why I believe that. I believe it because of what Paul goes on to write about this incident in Romans chapter 4. Here are the verses. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. Look at this next part. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Look at this next phrase, fully convinced. Not doubting, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And what had God promised, my friends? That a year from the point of this conversation, that his wife would give birth to a son. That son's name would be Isaac, which by the way means laughter. We're going to see this in the coming weeks, but there was a lot of laughter that surrounded the birth of Isaac. And God says, through that son, I will accomplish my promises. And what I want us to take from that is simply this. God always accomplishes his promises his way for our good and his glory. God always accomplishes his promises his way for our good and his glory. You see, the easy option would have been to just use Ishmael. Oh, Abraham. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned him. I totally forgot about him. He was off my You know what? Yeah, I'll just use him. He's already there. The problem with doing that would have been two things primarily. Number one, Abraham would have been able to share in the glory, wouldn't he? Can you imagine the follow-up conversation? Oh, you know, my wife and I, we've been waiting 10 years on God to come through on his promises and he wasn't coming through. And so we decided to do things our way. And so I slept with my wife's servant and got her pregnant. And she gave us a son so that God could actually use him to do what he said he would do. Credit belonging to Abraham. God wasn't ready to share that. But then secondly, listen, this couple, if God did it that way, this couple would have missed out on experiencing the supernatural power of God at work on their behalf. And so God simply responds and he goes, Listen, Abraham, I know about Ishmael, and I'm going to bless him, but we're not going to do it that way. No, we're about to do this my way. Why? For my glory and your good. It's really important for us all to remember today that we do not get to dictate to God how to accomplish his promises. When it comes to the word he's given us here, the things he's told us he will do on our behalf, we don't get to run back to God and say, okay, here's how I want you to do that. God's got a plan to accomplish all that he's promised in our lives. And his plan is always what is best for us and most glorifying to him. And let me just say it because I know some of you are already thinking it. I know it doesn't always feel that way. Especially when you're stuck in a season of waiting. Especially when you're stuck in a season of suffering. But there comes a point when every single one of us has to be willing to shove feelings aside. And we have to simply trust in what we know to be true. And out of that trust, we make deliberate decisions to exercise faith in God by walking in obedience to him. And that's what Abraham does. Look at verse 22. We're going to close with this. When he had finished talking with God, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, can we just think for a moment about what we just read? Not as church people who read the Bible like we read the newspaper at times, but as normal people who actually know that's weird. (laughs) Insane stuff that we just read from the pages of the Bible. Think about this with me. God wraps up his conversation with Abraham, and Abraham goes, and I assume he finds a knife somewhere, and with no great way to sterilize that knife and no great way to kill the pain, the brother proceeds to circumcise himself. And then he gathers all the men from his household, including his 13-year-old son. Men, can you imagine convincing your 13-year-old son to let you do that to him? Good luck with that. Gets all the dudes together in his household, and he lines them all up. He says, okay, hey, uh, I need to have a conversation with you. I just got done talking to God, and he told me that I need to perform some minor surgery on you today. Don't worry, I just did this to myself. It only hurts a moment. I brought some sticks for you to bite, bite down on. Um, I just need everybody to go ahead and, and drop the robes. Like, we got to do this as a sign of our faith in God. Listen, when I read that this past week, I was instantly reminded, sometimes obedience hurts. Sometimes obedience is awkward. Like, I know some of you good church-going people, you're even feeling awkward right now with me talking this way. But we have to talk this way because this is what happens. Obedience is at times highly uncomfortable for both us personally and the people around us. And so the question is, why obey God in those moments? In those moments when it's painful, in those moments when we'd rather do something else, why do we obey Him? Well, it's simple. Number one, first and foremost, because we know who God is. That He is God Almighty, El Shaddai, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, who alone deserves our glory, our honor, and our praise. But at the same time, look, he is our good, gracious, loving, heavenly father who always wants what's best for us and his word leads us to life and joy and freedom. But secondly, we obey God because we know who we are because of him. Amen? We understand that in grace he has declared us righteous. In grace he has given us eternal life. In grace he has adopted us into his family. And the only proper response to that grace we've received is obedience. Obedience. And so as we close, here's my simple question, and then we're going to pray. What do you need to obey God in today? What do you need to obey God in as a sign of your faith in Him? Maybe some of you need to forgive somebody. Maybe some of you are being called to serve a specific group of people. Uh, Maybe some of you need to share Jesus with a family member or a friend. Maybe some of you need to take a step of faith and be baptized to publicly identify yourselves with Jesus. Uh, Maybe others of the room, you finally need to open your wallet up and start investing in God's church and in his kingdom. I don't know what it is for you, but I guarantee you every single one of us in this room has an answer to that question. What are you not doing that God has asked you to do that you know you need to do as a sign of your faith in him? That's the question on the table. And as we close, I just thought we would pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to do that thing. So can we just bow our heads and close our eyes?